Welcome to Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Well, welcome to Hollywood Profiles of Yesteryear. I am your host, Gabriel Russo, and each episode here is a 15 or 20 minute look at one of the pioneers of film, a silent era star, and their lives and work and legacy. This episode is special. It's the 50th episode of the show. And so, in honor of the 50th episode, we're going to do a biggie, one that I have put off long enough, but when you're talking about silent era stars, there really is no one else except for Charlie Chaplin. So, for the 50th episode of Hollywood Profiles of Yesteryear, Charlie Chaplin, right after this. The Roaring Twenties, the Ballyhoo Years, the Jazz Age, the decade between 1919 and 1930, the crazy years of American history. That's right, crazy years and a crazy time back in the 1920s. And welcome back to Hollywood Profiles of Yesteryear with your host, Gabriel Russo. And this is the 50th episode, as I said before. So we're going to do something a little different. We're going to add um, add something to the show. Each episode will be brought to us, will be brought to you by an obscure slang term of the 1920s. Because I found a pretty cool website, 1920 slang on Huffington Post. Huffing, HuffEnglish.com this episode of Hollywood Profiles of Yesteryear, brought to you by Hotsy Totsy, which means pleasing. She's a real Hotsy Totsy. Also brought to you by Struggle Buggy. Struggle Buggy is the backseat of a car, a parent's worst nightmare. Boy, when I get her in the Struggle Buggy, she won't know what it is, eh? <laughs> so Charlie Chaplin... Like I usually do, I get my information from, typically from Wikipedia and from uh, IMDB. That's exactly what I did for this episode because, frankly, there's just too much information out there for um, Charlie Chaplin. There are too many sources. And so uh, we're going to dive right in here from what we're going to learn together about one of the pioneers of silent films, and one of the most important names to know about when you're talking about silent films. Um, the conversation really starts with Charlie Chaplin, because, you know, kind of common knowledge. I might as well start with what I know about Charlie Chaplin, I guess, before starting. You know, uh, I know that, you know, the little tramp, the waddling character, I've seen several of his shorts, several, many clips of his shorts, not... Um, not so much the whole features. I know that he was uh, portrayed in a great movie called Chaplin. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., late of Iron Man fame, played Chaplin and did a great job. I think that's one of the great. That's a great movie. Tells his, you know, the story of his life. Basically, we've touched on Chaplin. He's featured, you know, prominently or not in several of the uh, several of the lives of the people I've talked about in this show previously. And so, on with Charlie Chaplin. Um, he was born 1889 and died December 25th, 1977. So Christmas Day. It's always kind of freaky when people die on Christmas Day. He was a worldwide icon. And like I said, the little tramp, the tramp, is considered one of the most important figures in the history of the film industry. His career spanned 75 years or more. 
He was born in London. His father, he, he didn't know his father. And uh, the mother had no money. And so he was, uh, they sent him to a workhouse. Before the age of nine, he was sent to the workhouse two times. I've seen some stuff on TV about the workhouses and a Victorian, Victorian house. They talked about that quite a lot and how the workhouses were not a place you want to be. And so for a nine-year-old, that's probably not, you know, that's probably not great. He was touring. He began touring in music halls, which is um, the British term for vaudeville, basically. So the same type of, you know, early stage performing, you know, that we had here that toured the country. He was signed at the age of 19. He was signed by a man named Fred Carno. Now, Fred Carno was an early English theater impresario in Music Hall. And uh, he was a slapstick comedian. Now, he was born 1866 and went to 1941. So he's, you know, he's obviously a, a much older man. He was a slapstick comedian, like I said, and was credited with the, uh, with inventing or at least popularizing the custard pie in the face gag. So probably one of the very first people Certainly the the man who it was associated with at the time. So the pie in the face, you've seen everybody from the Three Stooges to uh, Laurel and Hardy to uh, up through Laugh-In to everybody. I mean, you know, even today, a pie in the face is... He also, in the 1890s, to circumvent censorship, he also developed a form of sketch comedy without dialogue. So sort of, uh, you know, mime. You know, mime, sketch comedy, clownish. You know, sounds like he was a big um, influence on Red Buttons. You know, who did, um, although I don't see that anywhere on the page here, but same type of stuff. And if, you know, so anyhow, Fred Carno, big, big time in London, gives Chaplin his start, gives him a, his first big break, and they go to America touring vaudeville where he is scouted for the film industry. And in 1914, he goes to work for Keystone Studios. Keystone Studios, we know about from the Keystone Cops, lots of early comedy. Max Sennett was the owner of uh, Keystone Studios and is credited with giving Charlie Chaplin his big break here in America. So he soon he develops um, the Tramp persona and forms this huge fan base so like I said, 1914, he starts working for um, Max Sennett. He debuts the Trant character in a picture called Kid Auto Races at Venice. And he also later shot Mabel's Strange Predicament, which was um, Mabel Normand. He makes several pictures, and during the filming of his 11th picture, Mabel at the Wheel, he clashes with director Mabel Normand. Now he had been adopting the uh, he had adopted the character of the tramp in all his pictures at this point and was refining it a little more in each one. Each picture he would make more and more suggestions for how the movie should be done, and uh, they were you know the directors would dismiss him at first, and then eventually, like I say, he clashes with uh, Mabel Normand, and that leads to a big blow up, and he's almost fired. But um, Senate keeps him on because he sees how popular Chaplin is getting. And so, you know, whether that was uh, known to Charlie at the time or not, but so he keeps him on because he's getting super popular. They're getting more film exhibitors are uh, sending letters in demanding more Chaplin films because that's what's bringing in the people. 
Senate allowed Chaplin to direct his next film, his, which would be his 12th film, only after Charlie Chaplin promised to pay him $1,500 if the film was not a success. And so that movie was caught in the rain, came out in 1914. So he, he starts his, that's always one of the things in this podcast that always gets me, is that he starts his career in 1914, in the one reeler making a living. And by, that's in February of 1914. By May of 1914, he, you know, th- what, three months later, he's already made, you know, 12 movies and he's directing one. And so, you know, talk about meteoric, you know, meteoric rises. Like I said, Caught in the Rain came out in May of 1914 and it was a huge success. After that, he directed almost every short film in which he appeared at the rate of one per week. He would later remember that time of his career as the most exciting. He loved the work. He loved the the fast-paced of the filmmaking. He What he did was, you know, he introduced a slower form of comedy than the typical Keystone farce. And, uh, you know, he would have the, the farces were basically like a chase. And Charlie Chaplin did a lot of chase scenes, but he also introduced the the femme fatale, the, uh, the, 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 the victim, the cry, you know, he, he brought a lot of emotion to his pictures. So in 19, later in, uh, by November 1914, he has a supporting role in the very first feature length film, the very first feature length comedy film of all time called Tilly's Punctured Romance, directed by Max Sennett and starring Marie Dressler, who we, um, who we talked about, uh, who we did, I did an episode on, on her, uh, before. Mabel Normand, also one of the stars of that movie, and Charlie Chaplin. And so, so that's just, you know, for film buffs out there, the very first feature length comedy movie, Tilly's Punctured Romance, uh, 1914, over a hundred years ago. You know, that's funny. They, they should have done three, you know, three years ago. We should have heard all kinds of, um, all kinds of stuff about a hundred years of film comedy and they should have been, you know, Hollywood should have really touted that up, but we, I didn't hear anything. You know, I don't watch E or any of that. So maybe they did. I don't really know, but it didn't reach out to the general mainstream zeitgeist. (laughs) So this movie is, um, a commercial success and he's getting more and more and more popular his contract comes up at the end of the year and he asks Senate for a thousand dollars a week, which comes out to roughly just under $25,000 in today's money. Senate says, no, no, that's too much money. And so, you know, he, so Chaplin leaves, he receives an offer from the SNA film manufacturing company in Chicago. SNA was an early studio founded in 1907 later moved to Niles Canyon, California, and is best known for its series of Charlie Chaplin comedies, which came out in 1915. Later in the 1920s, it merged with several other studios and then was eventually absorbed into Warner Brothers. So that's what happened to SNA. I had thought that SNA had a... Um, had another claim to fame, but as I'm looking, I don't see... They did a lot of movies with... Uh, like, they did several movies with Ben Turpin... Um, who was an early comedian? Colleen Moore was uh, was a, is a big star. Francis X. Bushman, Gloria Swanson. So lots of um, lots of stars and upcoming stars at the time. In uh, 1915, 
they send Chaplin an offer of $1,250 a week. It's more than he even wanted from, uh, from Senate and Keystone Studios. So they offer, they also offered him a signing bonus of $10,000. So he moves there in December. There you go. It's not even 1915 yet. It's by the end of 1914 by, de- by December. So he starts in February. And by the end of the year, he's making $1,250 a week. He's got a signing bonus of $10,000 and he's directing all of his own pictures. So, you know, I guess the cream rises to the top. He soon recruits. Uh, he's working for SNA Studios, and uh, he began he began forming his stock company of regular players, who he would work with kind of throughout his early career. Leo White and Bud Jameson. Bud Jameson, you would recognize from uh, Three Stooges shorts, from many Three Stooges shorts. He's always he's he's in several Disorder in the Court, maybe most famously, but several. Three Stooges shorts. As soon as I saw his picture, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. So, you know, he's 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 got these stock players around, these, these character actors that, that, he's, you know, that, that he enjoys working with. You know, why not? You get your friends in, find people that you have a, a nice rapport with, and, uh, and off you go, you know? So he meets um, Edna Purvance, Edna Purvance, in a cafe. He thinks that she is beautiful. And he hires her on the spot to be his leading lady. Um, over the span, over the next eight years, she would appear in over 30 films with him. She is a very beautiful woman. I'm looking at her picture here. They were together. They were, now she and Chaplin were uh, romantically involved for the next several years, but uh, never married. Um, she was his leading lady, like I said, in thir- over 30 movies, 33 pictures, including the 1921 classic The Kid, which is her. Uh, her last movie with him was A Woman of Paris, was her first leading role, and that movie was not a success and ended her career, basically. She would retire in 1927. Now, their romantic relationship only lasted through 1917, so really only a few years, whereas they worked together for over eight years. Now, as 1915 starts to come up, and uh, and he's making all these, you know, all these pictures here, he's, his fame starts to really ramp up. He, he starts to really hit in the culture and become a phenomenon. There's tons of merchandise featuring the Tramp. You know, I'm sure you know the, the Tramp. It's the, you know, he's got the, the little bowler hat, you know, the black jacket and cane, the little Hitler mustache, unfortunately. Uh, everyone knows the Charlie Chaplin Tramp, and you can look it up on YouTube. There were songs written about him. There were, He was featured in cartoon strips and comic strips. His fame starts to go worldwide, and he becomes one of the uh, he becomes the fir- the film industry's first international star. When SNA contract ends in the in the in December of 1915, so one year later, his contract with SNA ends, and Chaplin, now fully aware of his popularity, where he said, you know, before it looked like Max Sennett kind of knew how popular he was, but. So Chaplin now, he requests a $150,000 signing bonus. And basically, you know, not anyone, no one can, no one can really afford that. A lot of the studios, SNA certainly can't afford that. He does receive offers from Universal, Fox, and Vitagraph. Um, eventually he settles on an offer that came in from the Mutual Film Corporation 
that guaranteed him $10,000 a week. So now he's getting, he went a year before from $1,250 a week to now $10,000 a week in just the span of one year. $10,000 a week. His contract in full came to $670,000 a year. And uh, Chaplin, who was 26 at the time, was one of the highest paid people in the world. And so, um, yeah. So Chaplin rocking it. The amount of money that he was making was his 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 uh, salary went public in the papers, and people went crazy, and were like, "Oh my gosh, you know that's so much." But the president of the studio came out and and in support and said, "We can afford to pay him this much. We can afford to pay Mister Chaplin this large sum annually because the public wants Chaplin and will pay for him." And so people were showing up in droves. You know, that's the only entertainment you got to think about it. Back then, there wasn't. All this that there is now, you know, the, <laughs> it was uh, basically, there wasn't even radio, really. In, in 1915, it was, the Nickelodeon was about all you could do, or the live, you know, show that would come to town, what, you know, once every six months, probably, something like that. People would come out in droves for the new Chaplin picture to see with a tramp, you know, run around and, and kick, the, kick the man in the butt, you know, so to speak. Um, that's what the chap or that's what Chaplin's character was really, you know, all about was, you know, in the face, a quote unquote pie in the face of, uh, authority, you know, he learned from the man who invented the pie in the face. And so, so Chaplin goes on to, um, mutual gives him his own studio in Los Angeles. So by March of 1916, now he's ma he's making two reelers, a series of them. Um, the floor walker, the fireman, the vagabond. Mutual had the contract he had with Mutual stipulated that he release a two reel film every four weeks. So once a month, there's a new um, once a month there's a new Chaplin picture out there. Talk about oversaturation, you know. But it, with the net, with you know with uh, his rising popularity, he de began to demand more and more time. And uh, over the next basically over the next year. He only makes four more films for them. And so they're getting a little irritated, although they are um, considered by film scholars to be among his finest work. And the mutual years were referred to by Chaplin as the happiest in his career. But he also, he felt that those films were very formulaic and uh, he, began, he began to be dissatisfied with the uh, working conditions that were just, you know, make this film, make this film, make this film. And so he begins to, uh, you know, he begins to have arguments with, his, with the higher-ups about, um, you know, quality. He wants more time. They want him to fulfill their, his contract, basically. 1918, 1917, what, the uh, First World War breaks out, and Charlie Chaplin does not go to fight. He says that he would have fought for either of the countries that he lived in, Britain or his adopted land of America, but no one, neither one of them summoned him. And so, you know, he just decided to entertain everyone and he was a favorite among the troops. His fame just keeps on growing and growing. The Tramp image, Harper's Weekly in 1917, reported that the name of Charlie Chaplin was a part of the common language of almost every country and that the tramp image was universally familiar. So that's one of those things where you can go to basically anywhere in the world and show a picture of Charlie Chaplin and people nod and point, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with, you know, you hold up the Superman symbol and people go, oh, Superman, Superman. 
you know, they just, it's one of these things, oh, Mickey Mouse, yes, you know, people just know, you know, and on a side note, it's amazing how famous Mickey Mouse is for, frankly, not having a, a starring vehicle in forever. Mickey Mouse hasn't, Disney hasn't utilized Mickey Mouse in any big way in forever, and yet, you know, he's the biggest of the big, you know, kids don't even know why they like Mickey Mouse, because they've never seen him do anything, but... I guess they have new shorts on the Disney Channel that I've seen. But, you know, for years... Anyhow, it's not about Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so, um, people were, uh, you know, they gave him, you know, they gave him a little bit of crap for not going to war. But then, you know, eventually that kind of dies away. So his brother, Sidney Chaplin, was his business manager. And uh, he told the press, quote... Charlie must be allowed all the time he needs and all the money he needs for producing films the way he wants. It's quality, not quantity, we're after. So all the mo all the time and all the money. That's I mean, you know, it's a little it's a little out there. By June of nineteen seventeen he's done with mutual and they're kind of they're kind of tired of him. They had been patient for a long time. He signs with First National to complete eight films. That's a deal. He is paid the princely sum of $1 million. He builds his own studio right off of Sunset Boulevard and uh, with state-of-the-art, you know, production facilities. It's completed in January of 1918, and he is given total freedom over the making of his pictures. So it's at this time that he makes... Um, he goes on a Liberty Bond campaign. He raises money for the allies of the First World War. He also um, produces propaganda films and donates to the government. His next release is a war-based film. It takes place in the trenches with the tramp fighting in the war called Soldier Ar Shoulder Arms. Shoulder Arms. So people were against him making a war or making a picture about the war, making a comedy about the war. But he said uh, that the idea excited him very much. And he spent four months filming this picture. It's released in October 1918 and is a huge success. So basically at this time, everything he touches turns to gold. People are loving Charlie Chaplin. He's the first international star. He's the first... Well, he's the, yeah, he's the first international star. I think he's one of the first million-dollar actors in Hollywood. And so... With After the release of Shoulder Arms, he requests more money from First Nat National Pictures, which they refuse. And uh, Chaplin gets frustrated with their lack of concern for the quality. And Chaplin joins forces with Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith to form the new distribution company United Artists, established in January of 1919. This is a revolutionary... Um, arrangement in the film industry. The four partners were all creative artists and it allowed them to personally fund their pictures and have complete control. We are going to stop part one with, uh, with the formation of United Artists. When I was in high school and whatnot, I was a big comic book fan and, uh, this is apropos of United Artists. There were big famous artists who worked in uh, the comic book industry, they worked for several different comic book companies, Marvel Comics, DC Comics. They wanted to have creative control over characters that they created. You know, not Superman or Batman. Those were owned by those, 
you know, Spider-Man. They were owned by those companies, Marvel and all. But the characters that they created, they wanted to have some creative control over and make a, a larger percentage of the money. And so some of these guys dropped out of their, left their contracts, their lucrative contracts, and formed Image Comics. And uh, that, at the time, I remember reading articles about the formation of that and several times they were called uh you know it referenced the formation of united artists because it was a very similar situation you know these four big wigs five big wigs whatever it happened to be for both you know leaving their the safe confines of the studio system and starting their own you know starting their own thing now when i was a kid in the 70s i remember watching various cartoons several i think especially popeye cartoons that um and i i believe the pink panther also but i know popeye cartoons um and they were released by united artists and um that was my association with these you know with douglas fairbanks and you know charlie chaplin and all that because i kind of when I was a kid, obviously, I didn't know about them, but I knew about these cartoons because I would always look at who made the cartoons. So when I finally came to find that, um, you know, what United Artists was, it kind of all clicked into place. But um, I think that is going to do it for this first, for episode 50 of Hollywood Scandals of Yesteryear. Episode 51 will be part two of Charlie Chaplin, where we will go from the formation of United Artists, which happened in 1918, uh, through the rest of Chaplin's career, and uh, touch on some of his loves and controversies and whatnot. Like I said, this is uh, this has been part one. Uh, part two will be out. I'm recording it immediately following this, and I will put it out uh, six days or seven days from the release of part one. And so there won't be as huge of a lag as there often is in my episodes. And so, uh, thank you for listening to part one of Charlie Chaplin in the Hollywood Profiles of Yesteryear podcast. I have been your host, Gabriel Russo, and please come back next time to finish up Charlie Chaplin in episode 51. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening. Bye.